getting started. <clears throat> that was beautiful. And what a powerful message. Um, you, you, it's very uh, challenging to sing those words and to pray those words. We surrender. God, do what you want to. And I hope that's our prayer this morning, that we're in an attitude of surrender to the Lord. We appreciate that. And we're going to expose ourselves to God's word this morning. This is our daily bread, our daily manna. We don't want to live on yesterday's or try to reach into tomorrow's. But what does God have for us today and what can we surrender our lives to? We're going to look at a familiar uh, familiar commandment this morning. Maybe one that we think that we have done a pretty good, good job at keeping. Perhaps the Lord will show us that there are definitely some areas in our lives, even with this commandment, that need to be surrendered. So I appreciate our guests this morning and what a joy it is to fellowship with you. We're in Matthew chapter 5, and I actually have been preaching a series of sermons on one sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, he has really challenged our hearts and he's been teaching us what it means to be in the kingdom of God or to be a child of the king. And he challenges our hearts with the Beatitudes and he lifts those up as uh, examples for us to conform and transform our lives to through his power. He's also challenged us as the children of God that we are the salt and the light of the world. So not only do we want God to transform our hearts, but then God uses us to transform the world, to show the world his love and his truth. And then in the midst of this sermon, he begins to talk about the law. And of course, his audience in this sermon is a Jewish audience, and there are people that have followed him now that he has launched his ministry. And it's hard to talk to Jewish people without talking about the law because really their identity is in the law. God gave not the whole world his law as a gift, but he gave one nation, one people, his law as a gift that they might give it to all of the nations. And so they're in familiar territory when Jesus begins to talk about the law. Now, just like in our church today, when we talk about God's word or the law, there are people all over the spectrum as far as how we hold it in regard and how we apply it. And so in Jesus's day, there were people in that audience or at least Jewish people that would take his law very, very seriously. There's some that could care less about it, just like we have today, some People that call themselves Christians but really don't regard God's word at all. And there were Jews that way. They lived very worldly. There were also Jews we know historically and archaeologically, the, the community of the Essenes, who took God's word and law very seriously. And they pulled themselves out of the world, not to defile themselves by it, and formed their own community and took it very, very seriously. We can also learn a little bit about the scribes and the Pharisees by reading God's word. And the scribes studied it. They were kind of the theologians of the day. They took it very seriously. And then the Pharisees were kind of the professional doers of the law, if you will. We learned last week that they had God's law, but then they had rules about rules, about rules, and wrote more rules about what it means to keep these laws. So they were kind of the enforcers. And they all took it very seriously. So you had people 
from all different spectrums regarding the Word of God. <clears throat> Jesus is going to talk about the law. And we're going, to law, we're going to learn this morning that the law is very important. And we're going to learn that if you get the law wrong, it can take you to the flames of hell. In Jesus' words. And also, if you think you understand it and you think you're right in your interpretation and living it out, but you're wrong, you're also condemned to the flames of hell. So we want to understand Jesus' heart this morning in our text. The, the, the Word of God is designed, as Carrie reminded us in that song, it has the power to transform our very hearts. That's what our identity is. The, the word, the power of God creates us or recreates us. I am a new creation in Christ. And how interesting that is in our culture today, because what do we see but people who want to recreate themselves or name themselves as things? And that's one of the reasons that we face, say, the gender identity issue, where people want to change their gender and identify as a different gender or as i recently read be genderless it's offensive to me for you to call me a male or a female because i am recreating myself i am identifying myself as genderless as if we can recreate ourselves in that way and i think that's a delusion therefore though it's very upsetting it's Bound to fail because we can't live in delusion when there is such a thing of reality. The reality is this, that God's word, the power of the gospel, if you want to change, that's what can in real life change your heart. To conform to the image of Christ. And so that's what the word of God does to us. And we looked at the law. We talked a little bit about it last time. Jesus came to fulfill it. And that all the law points to Christ. He's the fulfillment of it. He, he makes it whole. He fills it up so it serves its purpose. And therefore, it's changed. You can't look at it in the same way or obey it in the same way as they did before Christ. But we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different perspective. Basically, it's a little bit of a run over that I didn't get to fit into last sermon about the law. And then we'll look at another point exactly at what Jesus says about the law. And he even said last time that to his audience, can you imagine those followers that your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? How is that even possible when we're talking about a group of people that are professional doers of the law? I mean, they practice this stuff and study it and we're just common laymen. So let's look at our text in Matthew chapter five. I'm going to read what we read last week and then add to it verses 17 through 22. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great 
in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The law of God. If Jesus came, as the New Testament teaches us, if he came to offer us forgiveness of our sins, he came to offer us a pardon for not keeping the law, and we are to live by grace, then what place could the law possibly have in our lives? Do we still need it? Can't we just, as some people like to do, say, I love God in my heart and then live any way I want? Do I really have to do what God's word says? Well, to this idea of just loving God in our hearts and then living any way we want, I think in this text, Jesus makes it plain. The answer to that is no, because the law of God continues to play a very important role in the progress of redemption. We can't just set it to the side. Christ fulfilled it and it has changed, but it plays a role in the believer's life. How so? Well, we know that the law of God is there for us as a standard, as a reflection for us basically to look into, to know what God requires of us. It's a reflection of the very holiness and the character of God. That's why Jesus says it's never going to pass away. Because God is eternal and his word and the truths that it embodies will live eternally just like God will. And our righteousness needs to be such that it surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. Now, I can imagine as Jesus said that, I can just picture jaws dropping. I mean, it's kind of like saying to you, just go out there and be Billy Graham's. And if you're not... You can kiss the kingdom of heaven goodbye. You know, it's kind of like, gulp. What, how do you do that? How is that even possible? They were the who's who in law keeping. Very serious, very structured, very disciplined. Um, perhaps like we might picture the lives of monks in that day. Or maybe the lives of some communities today. Maybe the Amish, very strict, very very structured, very disciplined. They had a system of rules upon rules. So how can we compete with that kind of rigid living? Do we even have a chance at that kind of living? Jesus says that actually the way that the Pharisees and the scribes live out their faith, though it looks so impressive on the inside, and it, and it actually looks like it's unattainable because they're so good at it, is a lowering of God's law and standard. Because the way that they are applying it is strictly externally. And they, are, they stand guilty and they're in sin because they have not allowed God's word to transform their hearts. They have just chosen to live 
the external functions or form of the word. And so there's a sense in which people can appear to be very righteous and holy, and yet in their hearts live like Satan. And that's what we find in many cases with the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is going to give us some examples of what it really means to obey the law of God. He's going to give us six. So it actually finishes out the chapter talking about the law of God and what the, the, the true intent of the words of God through Moses to the people are. We can read these commandments and some of them sound so easy, like I, I got this. But if they sound that easy or attainable, such as they did for the scribes and Pharisees, then maybe we're not understanding them properly. We might look at this commandment that Jesus talks about, murder, and say to ourselves, well, at least there's one that I kept. I mean, I can go to bed tonight and celebrate my righteousness because I can say, God, I went through the entire day. I mean, the whole day, several, several hours, and I did not kill a single person. Hallelujah. I'm celebrating my righteousness and my obedience, and I'm sure you're celebrating it with me. I was tempted. There's some people out there, but I didn't. So I, I've nailed this. I got this commandment. Well, that's. One aspect is, yes, to not kill people, but it goes a little deeper than that. We can't, we can't check it off our list of things to do in our obedience to God. As we'll see in, in the second point is that it, it runs, the vein runs much deeper than just not killing people. And, and in essence, what it really means is over here you have, say, murder. And then right here you might have somebody who really wants to but just didn't raise the knife or pull the trigger. So they didn't murder. But really what it means is to, to go in the exact opposite direction of anything to do with murder. To be as far away from it as possible so that you're not just sparing people's lives barely, but you absolutely love, adore, cherish, and do everything within your power to bring life into people. That's the whole idea behind that commandment. I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. But any aberration from the path of love, kindness and goodness and building up, you will see is actually a form. So external rules can make us look good. But what do we think about people that we spared the knife or, or the bullet or the bow? What do we think about them in our hearts? What is our attitude? What is our motive? What would we really like to see happen? That's what Jesus addresses in this. So, external rules don't always cut it. So, where does this leave us? Especially when we think about the gospel and living in grace. Christ came to save us from our sins. He died on our behalf. So, what do we do here? Well, the law remains important because it shows us not only a reflection of the character of God, as I mentioned, but it shows us how to love God. And if we've been transformed by the gospel, that's what we want to do, right? We want to love our Savior. 
And so the Ten Commandments aren't just rules to be obeyed. They are, they are practical ways that we can glorify God and love God. So if you want to show your love to a particular individual, let's say there's somebody in here that you really want to know that you love them. What are you going to do to let them know that? Well, you're going to learn a little bit about them and you're going to find ways that they like to be loved. And then you're going to step up to the plate and do that. So if you find uh, somebody that you're interested in, say a certain female, and you happen to overhear them say or they reveal in some way, I sure love it when someone gives me flowers. The way that you might want to show that person love is to show up with a bouquet of flowers. Or maybe you, 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 there's kids that in the room and they say, I just love when somebody reads me a story. If you want to show your love to them, you read them a story or take them fishing. God's word shows us how to love him, how to love him well. It shows us his heart, his likes and his dislikes. And as we study it and get to know him, these are just practical ways by obeying the law that we show our love to God. What does God love? Read his word. Read his law. And we will find out. So we show him love by obeying his commandments. But also in the big picture, we are really to, to break God's law, to violate God's law. It's not just to disappoint God, but it's really to break ourselves down. Because when you read the scriptures and you learn that you were actually designed to be an obedient worshiper, your life was created to glorify God and the way you do it is obedience to his law and, of course, faith and grace. And I'll touch on that. To not do what we we were designed to do. To break the law, we're really breaking ourselves. We're breaking ourselves down. We're going against the very nature for which we were designed. And as, as you know, when you use things in real life, in this life, for, for, in ways that they're not designed to be used, they break down. So a, a car, for instance, or say a motor, you've got to put oil in it. If you don't put oil in it, the light will come on to warn you. Well, if it's working properly, you check engine light, whatever, that's a warning. Something isn't right with this system. And if you fail to put oil in it or keep oil in it and preferably maintain and change the oil in it, otherwise what? It breaks down. It wasn't designed to function that way. We were designed a specific way according to Scripture. We get our meaning. We get our purpose out of that. And we're only breaking ourselves. We're violating our own identity our own personhood to go against the law of God. It's not a good thing to be a lawbreaker. I mean, for instance, and I know some of you have visited, hopefully not many have actually spent time in prison, but you have visited prisoners. If you go in there to the penitentiary, it is not a fun place. I mean, look at the lawbreakers. Would you say that, that that's a, a good life to live? To, to be behind bars and to have your suit that you have to wear and this, this kind you're on somebody else's time and schedule. It's not a fun place. It's a very, very dark place. The law has broken those that would break the law. 
So the law tutors us to live as God attended. But we can't keep it. So what does God do for us or where does Christ in the gospel come in to this? Well, Christ fulfilled the law, as he says. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for New Covenant Fellowship, a, a kingdom outpost, people living for the king? How do we how will we read the Bible, approach the Bible, worship God based on the fact where Jesus says, I fulfilled the law? Well, really, he's fulfilled it for us in two ways. To fulfill the law, to keep the law means if you fulfilled it, it means you've obeyed it. Right. So if you obey the law, if you're a law keeper, you don't have to worry about looking over your shoulder. You don't have to worry about people coming after you. You don't have to worry about having to pay the price because you've kept it. And that's one way to uh, to fulfill it. You keep it. But what if you break the law? The other way to fulfill the law is to pay the penalty. To pay the consequences of the broken law. To do your time or pay your fine or whatever. And then it's... Paid in full, and you have in that way fulfilled the law, and you're free to go. So if you if you take a um, this as an example, you're driving down the road. If you have your license, and then behind you in the rearview mirror you see the flashing blue lights, and if you're like me, your heart, your blood pressure goes, and then you look down at the with the tachometer, the speedometer, and you realize, ah, whew, it's going the speed limit. They're not after me. So you're obeying the law. Your freedoms will not be interrupted. You can go on your way as you wish. But if you're unfortunate and you're being a lawbreaker, you're going way over the speed limit, you're going to get stopped, you've disobeyed the law, you get a ticket. And you have some different options depending on what your violation was. But um, most of the time, if you just admit you're guilty, I was speeding. You don't even have to go to court these days. They make it real convenient. You can pay without going. Um, You can pay the fine. Say, I'm guilty. I'm going to pay this fine. You send it in. The law will not come after you. You have fulfilled it in that way. So what does Jesus do? He fulfills the law twice. He comes and he lives it perfectly. He embodies it. All ten commandments absolutely perfectly. Not just externally, but internally. Motives. There was in no way did he even come close to transgressing a law of God. That's how perfect he lived in his mind, in his heart, his whole person. So he fulfilled that for us because he gives us his righteousness as a gift. But then he also fulfilled it in that though we were the violators, blue lights going off everywhere in our lives, in our thought life, in our external actions. Jesus takes all of those violations that we committed to court, so to speak, and he pays the price that we earned. For our transgression of death. And so the Bible says it's paid in full. When you 
apply that through faith and grace in Christ. When you embrace that gift. So Christ fulfilled the law for us in two ways. Obedience and paying the price. That's the gospel. And that's what we embrace by faith. We believe that as God opens our eyes to it. That's what we walk in. I love the um, one of the lines in the, the worship song we sang. I think it said we we stand upon salvation. I, I like the, the 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 vision or the picture of we we walk we stand in salvation. We walk around in salvation because it's something that Christ has gained for us. We don't peer over the wall or we don't walk in and out of the gate. But because Christ has gained it for us by fulfilling it in two different ways, we we live in it. We walk all around in it. It doesn't mean we live in it perfectly and then we get kicked back out. It means we might be disciplined for it. But because Christ has gained that favor from God, we're, we're just walking in our salvation every day. We're choosing how we're going to walk in it, but it's something we walk in. We don't have to worry about gaining it. That's works righteousness. That's an exhausting thing to try to do is to every day wonder, did I do enough, God, to please you, to gain your favor? Do I need to do more? But we have the peace and the grace, the love, the favor of God because Christ gained it for us. And it changes the way we walk, changes the way we do life. I like what Martin Luther said in relation to the law. He says it's the job of the law to guide us, to tell us how to love God, how to live, how to become the person God wants us to be. So the law has an absolute place, but the law must not climb up onto the throne of your conscience. And he says this Christians often forget this. They forget that he has fulfilled the law and that the law starts to climb up into the throne and starts to make you feel terrible because you haven't done right or you haven't lived right. You're getting down on yourself and you're starting to give up and you're starting to despair. And he says, I want you to memorize this speech. Okay, Christians, talk to yourself in this way. Oh, law, you would climb up into the kingdom of my conscience and there reign and condemn me and drive me to desperation. You have overstepped your bounds. You are a guide for my actions. But the gospel, Jesus, is my righteousness and everlasting life, not you. So trouble me not. He shall keep my conscience joyful and quiet in the knowledge of my righteousness in him. What a, what a practical way to put what it means to walk in salvation and enjoy what Christ has gained for us. As opposed to spending our lives with all of our efforts trying to gain what Christ has already gained for us. There's a big, big difference. Works, obedience is exhausting. Believing that you have to attain to a certain behavior to receive the blessing of God. We walk in it because it has already been gained for us. And we're simply trying to please God in what he has already done. So grace, grace based obedience allows for uh, humility, allows for joy and forgiveness. 
And that's what transforms our hearts as we walk in gratitude. But there's another part here, not just the law, but then he applies it to murder. And then he talks about anger in verse 22. So I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or insults his brother or calls his brother a name is liable to the hell of fire. If you really want to love God, you really want to obey the commandment. Here's how it's done. Again, this is the first of six examples. This is just one. What does this mean? Well, there's more than one way really to take a life. That's what Jesus is getting at. There's other ways to to kill people. It's not just necessarily the the physical cut off their sustenance. And he lists three. First, anger. Well, what kind of anger is Jesus talking about? Because some anger is actually good. It's not the good kind of anger. It's not the righteous anger. Righteous anger is a good thing because it actually reflects the image of God. God gets angry at things, too. And when we get angry at the right kind of things, that's a good thing. Jesus is talking about the kind of anger that's not a good thing. It's not the kind of anger that wants to help people. That's the righteous anger. It's the kind of anger that wants to harm people, that leads to malice, that leads to violence. Then another way to... Murder would be what he calls insults. And that Aramaic word there has to do with just just a complete disregard for someone. In your mind, it's it's this elevated attitude of condemnation where you, you just don't even belong in my sphere of life. You're nothing to me. So it's really looking down on people. It literally means you are nothing. And then the last one, the name calling the fool. Now, Proverbs, the Bible even calls people fools. And that's when they don't live in relation to the reality that God has set for them. But this isn't that kind of fool. This is, this is um, when someone, it's, a, it's an absolute insult. It's basically calling people a moron. I've been called that plenty of times in my life. Uh, but that's what he's getting at. It's the Greek word for moros, where we get our term moron. Hopefully you've never used that. So our anger, name calling, uh, in, um, insults, it's with the intent to harm. It's with the intent to hurt. It's with the intent to, to bring down, to diminish, to, to resent. And what Jesus is getting at is that all of this attitude and these words that lives in our heart, that's the seedbed for the ultimate act of murder. And if, if you know that these are the very little things that actually grow into this, then they're totally unacceptable in our hearts. If these kind of grudges... If these kind of thoughts towards people is what we have and they can turn into bigger and bigger forms of destruction, then why would we want even the smallest seed of murder in our hearts? 
And Jesus is basically saying, if that's what you have in your heart, those kind of thoughts toward other people, you've broken this commandment. You didn't understand it correctly in the first place. All the little things that we foster, the little things that we allow or permit in our thinking, the thoughts towards others that we think, well, I didn't slap them. I didn't even say what I wanted to say. And they've just met with terrible tragedy. And I'm not going to say it, but in my heart, I am really glad that they are suffering in this way. Because I do not like them. And in my mind, they deserve it. And if I wasn't so self-controlled, I'd be right behind the other people playing my part as well. See, it's a seedbed for murder. And what happens a lot of times is that perhaps we haven't quite stooped as low as others because we haven't faced the same conditions as they have. But if the seeds are there, it's just a matter of time when the right sun or water hits it. In this case, it would be uh, evil motivations or influences. One thing we learned at the conference that um, Schindel Deckers brought to us last weekend, and I didn't know this, but on the mission field, a lot of times, now who are the missionaries? And if you think about it, they're the... They're the ones that are really passionate for Christ, right? I mean, kind of the cream of the crop, isn't that the mindset? They get out on the mission field, and they don't always do so well. Because they were able to be very godly at home or in their church community. But when you go out in the mission field, you're talking about you're changing your culture. You're having to work with a team maybe you've never worked with before. They have their own faults. And you're just put in this pressure cooker. And sometimes things that have been there the whole time come out. Some people are even disqualified because of it for the mission field. Dreams squashed. The idea is that was there all along and never properly dealt with. But because it was put in the incubator under certain conditions, then it came out. How many of us are like that? How, how many things do we have in our hearts that are really hateful or mean? Thoughts towards others that we've been able to manage so far. But how do we know when the day might come where the pressure's put on? To what extent will those kind of things grow? We have the same seeds in us, Jesus is saying. If these kind of things are there. But this is how we look at people. We hold grudges, contempt. Timothy Keller says, Jesus is saying, here are the standards for my followers. You may never hold a grudge because it's like murder. It's a seedbed for murder. And on top of that, at any time you meet anybody at all, you must never treat them lightly. You must never be dismissive. You must treat every person in every encounter as an infinitely precious being in the image of God. You must never blow off people. You must never look down on them. You must never be cruel, withering, never. If we harbor these kind of things, it's, it's the soil for soul-taking, for life-taking. Murdering some part 
of that. And, and it will break us. It will destroy us as well. And who among us has in our hearts the smell of death? And that's the principle. Lovelessness is murder. How many people have we killed this past month, this past week in this way? This is sobering. And yet how gracious of Jesus to tell us how life really works. So that we don't go around thinking, I got this. And miss it. All the form of murder. So what do we do with this? Well, I think the idea to close and to bring the gospel into it is this. The minute we see this about ourselves, the minute we admit it and confess it, that's me, is when we can be forgiven. That's when we realize, till we say that we're, we're, we're not, till we realize that we are one, we're not going to stop being one, if that makes sense. To realize that the, the very thing that keeps us out of the kingdom is by failing to recognize our need for the grace of God, our need for the fulfillment of the law, then our need for the fact that Christ took the penalty. When we see ourselves as Scripture sees us, then our hearts begin to soften, begin to change. It, it, it melts that hardness and has us come to the throne humbly on our knees God, I need you because you just described my heart. And without you, I will not make it into the kingdom of heaven. Forgive me. I cling to the cross. I choose Jesus for my life. In Galatians 4, Paul says that the law is a schoolmaster. It leads us to Christ. I, I pray that, that God's word is leading us to Christ this morning. How can this apply, say, to the ministry that is coming up here at New Covenant Fellowship with the retreats that will take place? Where young ladies and young men and the leaders that will guide them will be used of God. In light of this particular passage, we want to love people and love them well. We want to speak life into them. We want to adore them and cherish them and say, I hear you. I understand you. I get this. I have problems in my own heart. And what we all need is Christ. And so this weekend, whether you're involved on the premises or through prayer or serving in whatever way, that's what we want to see take place. We want to be the servants of God, the love of God. And we want our hearts and others' hearts to be set free from denial of sin so that we can walk in salvation and walk in the blessing and the favor of God that Christ has gained for us. And may God bless the preaching of his word this morning.